and pops is my dad frank Beccarello. thanks sweetie and thank you for tuning into episode 118 of spinning my dad's vinyl gather round the radio kids it's story time my first radio job was on a historical frequency in the cleveland market 1260 a.m i learned from some radio legends during that time the station put out an album of big band music from a local orchestra So, get ready for lots of reminiscing while listening to Music of Your Life Standards in Volume 118, Big Band Grandstand.
It's Harry Hershey and the WBBG Orchestra with Chattanooga Choo Choo, composed by Harry Warren with lyrics by Mac Gordon. It was written in 1941 as a song for the movie debut of Sun Valley Serenade and became a top-selling pop hit during the early years of World War II, made famous by, of course, Glenn Miller. Okay, why this album for this episode? April 1st would have been my 41st anniversary in radio if I had decided to stick with it. But believe me, I made the right choice. I enjoy paying the bills. But even though I was stuck behind the board from midnight to 5.30 a.m. Monday through Friday and from 8 p.m. Sunday to 5.30 a.m. Sunday night through Monday morning for over two years, I learned a lot about the radio business from some pretty popular Cleveland Air personalities. This episode is more about them and the stories from my first radio job than the big band standards on these records. They're more of a vehicle for these stories. WBBG 1260 AM was known as the Big Band Grandstand and much more in the early to mid-1980s, also playing the Music of Your Life format. At one point, it was the number one listened to nostalgia station in the country as commemorated by the shirt I am holding up. Now, I, I didn't get the correct size, so I've never worn it other than trying it on, so I won't be wearing it for this episode. The station's on-air lineup featured some of the top names in Cleveland radio, and even around the nation. We'll talk about them and with one of them as this episode progresses. Every Sunday morning in the Grand Ballroom of the Statler Office Tower at 12th and Euclid, the station hosted the Big Band Brunch, usually featuring Harry Hershey and the WBBG Orchestra. Sometimes it was the Glenn Miller Orchestra or Tommy Dorsey's band. I loved bringing my parents to these so I could watch them dance. In 1982, this album of big band favorites was released. And not only did I grab a copy for myself, but I got my dad his own copy. <laughs> uh, there were unclaimed stacks of them in the prize closet. So as we go through with tales about my time at this radio station, we'll hear from the station's own big band. Okay, let's get started. Can't get no place 
Get Started is a popular song and jazz standard with lyrics by Ira Gershwin and Vernon Duke. The song was written in 1935 and introduced a year later by comedian and actor Bob Hope, who sang it to Eve Arden in the Broadway production of Zigfield Follies of 1936. Okay, let me tell you about my dad's vinyl I have chosen for this episode. Harry Hershey and the WBBG Orchestra Big Band Grandstand. It's on the Peter Sounds label, number PSLP 102. It's a vinyl LP album format. was released in 1982. Its genre is jazz, and its style is big band. We will hear seven of the 14 songs from this album. Now, there are not many liner notes, so I will read them all. First, from the radio station's owner, and then about the leader of the big band. This album is a tribute to you our WBBG 1260 AM listeners, who now comprise one of the largest audiences in the Midwest. Thank you for your support. Please keep letting us know the songs you want to hear. WBBG Radio will continue to bring you the music of your life. That was written by Larry J.B. Robinson of Robinson Broadcasting Company. Yes, some of you might remember him as the Diamond Man from the commercials he recorded for his string of jewelry stores. During the two-year run of the very successful stomping of the state featuring the Harry Hershey Orchestra, people were taken back to the early 1940s and the big band era, and they loved it. A key ingredient to the show's appeal was the authenticity of the music the orchestra presented. The association of the Harry Hershey Orchestra and the radio station WBBG seems natural, as this station features the great popular music of the war years and more. Through the efforts of Harry Hershey and Larry Robinson, along with many of the finest musicians in the Cleveland area, the sounds of the 40s live on. This album is a beautiful result. 
Let's see what prices this record is being sold at on Discogs.com. Now, even though 17 people claim it is in their collections on the site, it has never been sold there. But you can get a copy ranging in price from $1.50 to $65. Now, that one's never been opened. There is one with the back cover signed by eight band members, including Harry Hershey, for $35. I found one on eBay for $15 and one on Amazon for $7. Now, my dad's album is really clean with very little crackle because it's still in the original internal white envelope. Uh, the cover is in almost perfect condition, except he put his green magic marker and the word posted on it on the back. Uh, no sign of his address label on the front, though. I will value my dad's vinyl at a buck. Okay, next up. Your big tall papas off to the seven seas. You see him up and down the avenue, and now he's wearing the navy blue. She had a tear in the corner of her eye. As he said his last goodbye Shoo, 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 baby Shoo, 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 baby Bye, 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 baby Your papa's off to the seven seas Now don't cry, baby Shoo Shoo Baby was a popular song written by Phil Moore. 
The song was made famous by the Andrews Sisters as they sang it in the 1943 film Three Cheers for the Boys. Shoo Shoo Baby was a big hit for the trio in 1944, reaching number six on the charts. Now, this is where I usually do a bio of the featured artist, but like I said at the beginning, the music in this episode is just a vehicle to tell stories about my days at the radio station that released this album. Before the owners settled on the big band and music of your life format, 1260 AM was the frequency for the popular Wixie 1260. For more than 10 years, Wixie was a major force in the Cleveland radio market. The high energy station pulled in great numbers, had some amazing air personalities, sponsored some wonderful contests and concerts, including bringing the Beatles to Cleveland, and was a major radio presence in Cleveland. It also started the Wixie School of Broadcasting, which became the Ohio School of Broadcast Technique, which is where I graduated from. The BBG on Air lineup consisted of a plethora of who's who in Cleveland radio. Most of these air personalities had really made their mark on other stations in the decades leading up to their time at WBBG, and I learned something from every one of them. I handed over control of the station at 5.30 a.m. every morning to Tom Armstrong. Tom was like everybody's grandfather. He often talked about his wife and his dog and his daily life. Listeners would call up asking about the pooch on days that he forgot to mention him. I often used my family in some of my on-air work after seeing how effective it could be to connect with your audience like that. Tom was a huge golfer usually heading out to the course right from the station most mornings after his shift. In fact, I was still at the station when he passed away. Reports were that he had a heart attack in the middle of a backstroke on the putting green, probably the way he would have wanted to go. The captain, Carl Reese, was the guy I would relieve every weeknight at midnight. Carl had a golden baritone voice and one of the nicest demeanors I've ever been around, especially in radio. He never rushed out of the air studio after his, after his shift, but always stuck around a bit to chat or dole out advice for radio and for life. Carl died in November 2014 after a lengthy illness. He was 83. He'll be part of one of my interesting side note stories coming up, too. It was my broadcasting school internship that first brought me to the station in early 1982. I was chosen to write news for the afternoon drive personality, Bill Randall. I'll never forget, after my first day on the job, when my dad asked what I was going to be doing, when I told him who I was working with, his face lit up, and he got this big smile. My dad had become a fan of Bill's while still in high school, and it was someone he had listened to for years. He was really excited that I was going to have the chance to learn from one of the best in the business. Now, let me tell you how influential Bill Randall was, not just in Cleveland. The influence he wielded was nationwide. Some say he was even more influential than Alan Freed, the Cleveland DJ most noted for popularizing the term rock and roll. Bill Randall was one of the most influential star-making disc jockeys of the 1950s and 1960s. He was a Cleveland radio voice since 1949. Born in Detroit, he had hosted a popular show at WJLBAM radio called The Interracial Goodwill Hour, featuring rhythm and blues music and hot jazz. As a pioneering disc jockey at radio station WERE in Cleveland, he helped change the face of American music. He was pivotal in bringing Elvis Presley to the ears of America and helped launch and expand the careers of many others, including Tony Bennett, Bobby Darin, Rosemary Clooney, Johnny Ray, and Fats Domino. 
His influence was so widespread that Time Magazine called him the DJ, the top DJ in America. Some of his accomplishments were taking Johnny Ray out of obscurity and set him off on a string of top-selling hits, renaming the the Canadaires, the crew cuts, getting them signed by Mercury Records and had them cover the song Shaboom, which became a number one hit, and telling the Diamonds to record Why Do Fools Fall in Love, which became a hit. In the late 1950s, Randall would fly back and forth from Cleveland to New York, where he produced radio shows in both markets. In spring of 1955, Randall told listeners to his WERE radio show that while in New York City, he had received a recording of a hot new talent from the singer's manager, Colonel Tom Parker. He decided to premiere it in Cleveland, understanding the crossover appeal there of a young Elvis Presley. Randall championed Elvis's early recordings on Sun Records and those following his singing by a signing by RCA Victor that fall. While Elvis was in Cleveland performing at Brooklyn High School, a film crew was shooting a short on the Pied Piper of Cleveland, Bill Randall. He insisted they film Elvis Presley, and it is today the only footage of Elvis's early career. On January 28, 1956, Bill Randall introduced Elvis on TV to America on the Dorsey Brothers stage show. Many had told me over the years that Bill Randall was mostly responsible for Elvis's popularity north of the Mason-Dixon line, and now you can see why. Bill never stopped learning. A wealthy Bill Randall left Cleveland Radio in the 1960s to enhance his education. He obtained an undergraduate degree from Wayne State University and a law degree from Oklahoma City University. He went on to earn a doctorate in American Studies, a master's degree in sociology from Western Reserve University, a master's degree in journalism from Kent State University, and a master's degree in education from Cleveland State University. At age 64, he passed the Ohio Bar Exam and opened a law office in Lakewood, Ohio. In addition, Randall became an educator and taught sociology and mass communication classes at several universities. It was during this time he returned to full-time radio in Cleveland, and he used to tell me about his annual trips to the Kentucky Derby, where he would do a class with his media students. I loved hearing firsthand stories directly from him. I once had to drive him to the Greyhound bus station so he could get to one of those destinations I just mentioned. On the way there, he told me about a young Elvis Presley coming to Cleveland for the first time. He was to appear at that Brooklyn High School concert in 1955, featuring Pat Boone and Bill Haley and his Comets. Bill picked up Elvis from the airport and didn't like what he was wearing. So Bill took him to a store and bought Elvis his first jumpsuit. And if you know anything about Elvis, you know about the jumpsuits he was famous for later in his career. Radio personality, pilot, lawyer, and college professor, Dr. Bill Randall died of cancer in Cleveland on July 9th, 2004. He was 81. And now, a question I keep asking myself all the time.
lucky that I'm right We make each other laugh We make each other sing And you can never ever overdo a good thing So why don't we do this more often Just what we're doing tonight Just what we're doing tonight Don't We Do This More Often, written by Allie Rubel with lyrics by Charles Newman and published in 1941. This song is considered a standard, having been recorded by many artists, including Doris Day, Bing Crosby, and Kay Kaiser. In the Warner Brothers cartoon, Bugs Bunny Gets the Boyd, Bugs Bunny and Beaky Buzzard say the first two lines of the song. Now, you may or may not have noticed that I didn't mention the midday guy at WBBG. Ted Alexander. He has one of the smoothest and most recognizable voices in Cleveland and nationwide. You may have heard his voice at the end of countless TV commercials as he was the booth announcer that recorded those tags, and those spots were then sent all over the country. Ted is still in the Cleveland area, and I had a chance to chat with him by phone to do some reminiscing about the big band grandstand. And Ted wasn't just a great voice and air personality, but he was also a chief engineer at several stations over the years as well, giving him a rare radio combination. Hi, Frank. How are you? It's been a long time. It sure has, Ted. So nice for you to do this. I really, really appreciate this. What are some of your fondest memories about that radio station specifically? Well, it was interesting because as a chief engineer, it was kind of pulling together with the remnants of uh, the old Wixie. And uh, working in the old Wixie studio at at first before we rebuilt that and the M105 studio that was there. They were doing talk when they first started off. And they had quite a lineup there. They had Bill Gordon and Bill Randall, Ed Fisher, Merle Paulus, Bruce Drennan. They, they're the guys that brought Bruce Drennan to town. And uh, they did, uh, you know, talk and then uh, the afternoon sports talk uh, when it was called Super Talk 1260. And uh, that wasn't as successful as they wanted it to be. The, the signal wasn't really that great, but uh, they had covered the city. So, um they said, why not on a Saturday night, we'd, why don't you try doing a solid gold show, an oldie show on Saturday nights? And so we called it the Saturday Night Bandstand, and, uh, and after American Bandstand at the time. And apparently it was very, very well listened to uh, for a station that was you know, totally out of the format during the rest of the week. So that's when they decided they made up their mind to uh, take the station to an oldies format. Uh, it, it was kind of neat working with music of your life with uh, 
Oh, hey, Chris Columbia. You remember the late Chris Columbia was uh, was yeah. a super talented guy. He did news and he did his jazz show on Sunday evenings. Um, and uh, some of the guys left over from DOK just worked there for a little while. But it was Walt Henrik and Bob Engel uh, who, had, you know, had some of the best voices in the business. They were on radio in this town for decades. And so uh, uh, they, they changed it over to Music of Your Life. And then um, Larry Robinson bought it. And uh, he came in and he decided he was going to be like the program director. And uh, he chopped up all the tapes and he was playing. Basically, he made it a jukebox for himself. Larry was quite a character. There was one time, you know how AM radio is subject to static uh, during a thunderstorm, but FM usually, you know, is not. Well, being the chief engineer, one morning about 2 o'clock, we had this big thunderstorm rolling through the city. And I get a call 2 in the morning, Alexander Robinson. There's all kinds of static on the signal. And I said, yeah, it's it, it's it's the thunderstorm. He says, well, I don't hear it on the FM. Fix it. And they hung up. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I mean, what, you know for a guy who's who's worth millions and millions of dollars, uh, he was he was a very strange, strange cat. I will so give he, you a perfect another another perfect example of how he treated that station as kind of his own playground. Um, when I was there, it was it was a. Uh, it was a weeknight. I get this phone call, and I know it's an it's an early car phone because you can hear it winding up as he's accelerating. Yep. And he says, yep. he says, I'm coming in. I want to do a news report. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning. I want to do a news report, have a newscast ready for me. So I had to run into the newsroom, grab a bunch of news, uh, news stories for him, have it there, and he walked in. I flipped open the mic. I, he sat down. He did a newscast. He was done. He walked out. I, you know, rarely ever saw him again. <laughs> That's I'd never heard that story. That's a new one for me. Story, one you. of the other people we haven't mentioned um, in all of this is Carl Reese, who was on the air um, after mm-hmm. um, after Bill Randall, and he would hand it off to me at midnight. So he and I uh, got got pretty close. You know, another great person to look up to. Oh yeah, yeah. Carl, Carl, and I became uh, quite uh, quite good friends, and I I worked with him uh, also over at uh, WCLV. But Carl was one of the nicest, most cordial people you could ever meet. Uh, and uh, uh, I remember one sure. time well, when I was working down in Dayton, I'd known Carl. I'd ran into him a, a, a number of times up here, and uh, I was really kind of down and out. And I said, I said I just got to get out of here. And he he talked to me one day and. Uh, for about a half an hour before he he went on the air, and uh, he cheered me up real well. And when, when I got back, you know, from Cleveland, we, we you know, again we started working together again. Um, you know, because I used to listen to him all the time on WJW, and uh, uh, I, I can't say enough about Carl as as one of the finest uh, finest people I know. Ha- very handsome man, one of the great voices in radio, and all. Yes. That was one of the things I remembered. Here I was, a young buck, you know, still in broadcasting school, and every single one of you were so kind to me and offered me all sorts of advice, which didn't and doesn't always happen in the radio business, which could be such a backstabbing business. Well, there was an interesting time with Bill Randall, you know, Bill and his ego. Well, well one day, I get it. <laughs> One day, when it was over at WRMR then, yet when we were on 850, uh, he was having some kind of a, uh, just just getting angry and his ego was coming in and he's kind of like cursing around and everything like that. 
And I just had enough of it. And I said, well, this is either going to get me fired or I'm going to get punched in the mouth or something. But I walked in and I said, I looked at Bill and I said, Bill, why the hell do you act this way? What is it? And he started glaring at me. And then he stopped glaring at me and he started to smile. And he says, well, that's just the way I am. And from that point on, we were very cordial to each other. <laughs> you know, you stood up to him. You stood up to him and realized you're not going to take his crap. And uh, that was. It. And then at the very end, I was the only one he wanted to have fill in for him when he was, you know, approaching the end of his life there at WCLV. Wow. So I, you know, and and here's this kid that grew up listening to him. Now he gets to announce Bill Randall's death on the air. Uh, uh that, that was that was the of all. Yeah, of all the stuff I ever did on the air, that was the toughest. I just about lost it that day. Aw, thanks, Ted. And I'm looking forward to having lunch with you to continue this conversation in the very near future. Now, that was a 45-minute call, and I will post a slightly edited version of the entire conversation and pop that link into the episode's liner notes. It was some pretty good stuff. Up next, time for a waltz.
It's Anniversary Waltz, composed by Dave Franklin with lyrics by Al Dubin and written in 1941. Okay, time now for this episode's interesting side notes, and they have to do with the um, hookers on Prospect. Back then, Prospect Avenue was the center of Cleveland's red light district and was only a block south of where the radio station was at 40th and Euclid. In fact, I often interrupted uh, business in the back alley parking lot of the building since I didn't get there until long after the sun went down. Well, this first story is from my very first night on the air 41 years ago. I had asked Dave where would be a good place to have breakfast because I had to go straight from my air shift down to classes at the broadcasting school, which was just down the street at 17th and Euclid. He said, just go over to the diner at 40th and Prospect. Just make sure you are out of there by 7.30 because that's when all the working girls show up. So I walked into the diner and there wasn't a soul except the person behind the counter and a couple of cooks. Had a great breakfast, buried my nose in the newspaper, looked down at my watch and realized it was 7.35. Well, I hadn't heard them come in, but I look up from my newspaper and every single seat was taken by a prostitute getting off work that morning. Uh, I felt just a little uncomfortable and made my way out of there very quickly. The other story has to do with Carl Reese. One night as we were changing chairs, he was looking out the window and the windows of the studio were on the second floor that overlooked Euclid Avenue. And he said, Frank, come on over, take a look at this. Well, we were watching a guy with his back up against the wall and a prostitute was uh, on her knees in front of him and we watched her reach into the guy's pants, pull out his wallet, stand up, start running across Euclid Avenue with the guy chasing after her with his pants still down around his ankles yelling, you come back here with my wallet. You come back here with my wallet. <laughs> I've got many hooker stories because of where that station was. But, uh, ah, the memories. But I really don't think that last guy was very well-dressed. <laughs> There's a change in fashion that shows in those front fit avenue clothes. Mr. Doom has disappeared with his flashy tie. You see in the hall of Esquire. What the well-dressed man would desire When he's strutting down the street with a sweetie pie Suntan, shade of green Or an olive draft color scheme That's what the well-dressed man in Harlem will wear Dressed up in O.D. With the tin hat for overseas That's what the well-dressed man in Harlem will wear Top hat, white tie and tail No more They've been put away till after the war If you want to know That's what the well-dressed man in Harlem will 
talking about the top hat White tie and tail No more They've been Put away till After the war If you Want to know Take a look at Brown Bomber Joe That's what the well-dressed Man in Harlem will wear Yes sir Folks will look will stay out and what the well-dressed man in the hollow will Well-Dressed Man in Harlem, written by Irving Berlin for the Broadway musical This is the Army and originally recorded by Fats Waller. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Just looking at the album cover to this record immediately brings back mostly fond memories of my over two years of doing overnights at this popular station. It's really where I learned my craft and I got to learn it from some of the top professionals in the business. And not just the on-air personalities that I mentioned, but several others like Chuck Collins and Tom Siula, who were responsible for production and news. Because of this radio station, I got to see other big-name bands that were still touring in the early 1980s, in addition to Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey and others from the big band brunches. I also saw shows from some great musicians late in their careers. Buddy Rich, Stan Kenton, And I got to introduce my all-time favorite jazz musician, Maynard Ferguson, on stage. And my dad was in the audience that night. Plus, in a radio-like twist, the air shift I took over at WBBG was from Dave Sharp, the guy from the first Hooker story. Well, I also took over his air shift when I was hired eight years later as the afternoon drive DJ at Rocket 101 in Erie, Pennsylvania, where I was named after another Cleveland DJ legend, Tommy Edwards. (laughs) Radio is truly a small world. So let's finish up with one of my favorite big band tunes. Vai, 
Bugle Boy was a World War II jump blues song written by Don Ray and Huey Prince, which was introduced by the Andrews sisters in the Abbott and Costello comedy film Buck Privates in 1941. And there you have selections of stories from my very first radio job. So thanks for tuning into volume 118, Big Band Grandstand, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops for Volume 119, World's Greatest Horn. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. (laughs) 